This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today's episode features the NBC Evening News from January 31st, 1941, with reports from multiple locations. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you'd like the show, please leave feedback on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us continue to produce the podcast. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's episode. It's time to listen to the NBC Newsroom of the Air. Good evening, everyone. This is John W. Vandercook in New York. Tonight, the newsroom takes you first direct to England. Will you go ahead, London? This is John McVeigh in London. London has had no air raid alarm tonight, and no raiders are reported over Britain. But during daylight, three alarms were sounded. German planes flying singly attacked the capital from different directions. They ran over first, hiding in the heavy cloud formations that blanketed the entire area. It's officially stated that two of the German planes were shot down. The Raiders were the light, fast fighter bombers that can carry light bombs and depend on speed and cloud cover to escape defending fighters. Some of the Raiders stayed up in the clouds to drop their bombs, but others sounded as though they were diving down below the clouds occasionally to get a quick look at the ground. High explosives and firebombs were dropped here and there, and the attacks were widespread. To most observers here, this type of raid seems to be a rather senseless one. The bombs are light and seem to be scattered by pilots who are in such a hurry to get rid of their load before they run into British fighters that they don't take the time to pick out an objective and plaster it with three or four well-aimed shots. In one residential section of London, we heard a bomber getting rid of a stick of four bombs. The first was a fair distance away. The second was closer... And by that time, we were flat on the floor waiting for the third. You could tell they were light bombs with a whistle and the explosion. The third and fourth were fairly close. Then we heard the sound of the plane's engine growing fainter, and we knew then it was all right. Just outside, some workmen were putting up a new building. When I got to the window, the foreman was yelling at some of his men, working at a cement mixer. He was half angry and half laughing. He was saying, with that machine making so much noise, you'll never hear them coming down until one drops inside. The front of his suit was dusty, as though he, too, had been lying on his stomach. Later, I went out to see where the bombs had fallen. One struck the sidewalk at the corner of a narrow alley. A muse, they call it here. The bomb bomb had made a hole only a few inches deep and four or five feet across on the hard pavement. It had blown in the windows of several houses, and people said one person had been killed. Another bomb had knocked part of the roof off an empty house. I was told a fourth bomb had hit a small neighborhood shopping street and killed and wounded two or three people. That's about all that raids like today's do. Kill a few people and wound a few people. As far as one can see, they have precisely no effect on wrecking the British war effort or the morale of the Londoners. Because people nowadays don't pay an awful lot of attention to daytime raiders until something falls right next to them. Mr. Wendell Wilkie inspected defenses on the southeast coast today. Afterward, he said he thought the Germans would have a tough job if they try an invasion around where I've been. 
He saw anti-aircraft guns at Dover fill the sky with bursting shells when a German raider approached. And he also saw some of the big coast defense guns fired. Mr. Wilkie has been getting all the headlines in the British press, but Mr. Harry Hopkins, in a quiet way, has been carrying out a thorough investigation of affairs in this country. He is on noticeably friendly terms with Mr. Churchill, and today he accompanied the British Prime Minister on a tour of Southampton and Portsmouth. This is John McBain in London, returning you to the National Broadcasting Company in New York. And now for the news direct from Italy. Go ahead, Rome. Hello, NBC. This is David Anderson speaking from Rome. The recent Hitler speech has brought our attention around once more to the final drive which the Axis forces will attempt in the British Empire. But in retrospect, it is interesting to follow the development of Italian opinion, at least during the last few weeks, in view of coming events, which, according to Hitler, will culminate in a final Axis victory this year. When Italy entered the war, it was generally agreed that at least a portion of its fighting would be over in a few days or weeks at most. The Italian people at that time were riding the crest of a wave, a wave which suddenly broke, leaving the Italian people and armed forces face to face with a tougher enemy than anticipated. However, for a short time, it looked as though certain victory were in the bag for the Italians, and the reverses suffered in Greece were looked upon as only temporary setbacks, which would be compensated for by a final crushing blow at the Greeks. And yet this crushing blow was not so far materialized and Mussolini was only too quick to sense that any hopes of a sudden victory were futile, and to tell the Italian people that they must expect a long, hard struggle. They looked with envy on the wide expanses of the British Empire. They remembered Versailles, and any measures, including a long, hard war, seemed justified. For some time, the Italians felt confident of their own self-sufficiency. It was our soldiers, our navy, our air force who would bring glory to Italy. And yet, let's move the clock forward a little. After many weeks of hard fighting, the Italians are now in Albania and not in Greece, in Libya and not in Egypt. For a while, it looked as though the British were invincible. And then came word that German airmen were on their way down to Italy to assist the Italians in their fight for control of the Mediterranean. This temporarily changed the complexion of the war in this immediate vicinity, and now we heard more of Axis collaboration. Almost at once, Italian spirit took on new life and the term Axis seemed to have teeth. The quicking we strive in the Bardia, Tobruk, and Derna were interpreted here in Rome as mere political campaigns without much military significance. Following the recent Hitler-Mussolini meeting at Bactus Garden, the statement issued by the Italians that the effects of this meeting will be felt shortly is looked upon with anticipation by the Italian people. More and more, the eyes of every Italian are turned toward Germany. Their hopes are pinned on Axis cooperation, but where this will come first is as yet unknown. So from the Italian point of view, I think there is only one thing which bears real watching, and that will be to see where Axis collaboration is next felt. If the big drive on the British Isles is successful, there is an outside chance that the Italian position will automatically be alleviated. But there is also the possibility that the Axis may strike at other points of the Empire before making any serious threats of invasion. Some neutral quarters in Rome are even of the opinion that an invasion will not be attempted at all. The answer to these questions is known perhaps only to two men, and it's a certainty they won't tell. This is David Anderson returning you to the National Broadcasting Company. And now the newsroom here in Radio City in New York takes great pleasure in introducing a familiar voice and a familiar personality. Mr. Fred Bade, 
the chief of the National Broadcasting Company's London office, and the only American radio reporter who has the distinction of having been wounded in action by a Nazi bomb. Mr. Bate is now sitting here beside me, looking, I am glad to say, very well indeed. He has just come from Europe by clipper plane, and has only been in this country for five hours. And now Mr. Bate is going to talk for a few minutes with the members of his staff, back in London. As I have said many times before, will you go ahead, Fred Bate? Thank you. That's the first time I've heard you say that at this short range. <laughs> Hello, John. Fred, how are you? Well, I'm Grand. How's Miss Boutwood? Well, she's right here. And Miss Peart? Fine, thanks, Mr. Bate. Well, that's good. Have you got that new office yet? Yes. Yes, all right. Stole. Well, all right. We, you, you let us know where it is eventually. Yeah. Uh... Look, kid, will you tell, first of all, give, give my best to all of my friends there on the BBC. Yes, and certainly. give my best to Ed Murrow of Columbia, will you? Tell him that I hope we'll be doing some more trips very soon now. He left a message to you, Mr. Bates. He's just gone. He said to uh, give you his best if we heard from him. All right, grand. Uh, we had a good trip on the Clipper. They expected it to be a rough one. It wasn't. We broke the record from Horta to Bermuda uh, in spite of heavy headwinds all the way. There's one thing that I want to talk to you about, John. Yes, sir. Uh, I think either Miss Bartlett or Miss Peart will know how to get hold of him. I told the men in the NBC newsroom here about that young Frenchman. I think he was 18 or 19 or 20 years old. Yes. Who built or reconstructed an old plane and yeah. managed to flop it across the channel some way and land in England. That's all he wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, they'll remember about him if you don't. Yeah, I remember. Well, now they're interested, and will you try to get hold of him and invite him to do an interview with you? Yes, I will, certainly. If, but, his, uh, if his English isn't... Does he speak English, Fred? Well, I think he speaks a little, but you can mix it with French mm -hmm. and interpret as you do the interview. Yes. There's one other thing. Uh, tell all our friends there, will you? Press and radio that the one thing that's impressed me here in the few hours that I've been here is that everybody over here feels that both press and radio have kept the people of this country very well informed about what's going on in England. Well, that certainly makes us feel fine, Fred, you know. Well, you tell, tell all our friends about that. Yes, we will. And the best to all of you. Thanks very much, Fred. Good night. Good night. Thank you, Mr. Bates. And now for a short news bulletin. Word has reached Vichy tonight that Thailand, with whom the fight, fighting in Indochina has stopped for the moment under an armistice agreement, has now submitted its demands. They are heavy. As the price of a negotiated peace, the Siamese are insisting that the French give up almost as much territory as Siam might have expected to gain by an out-and-out -out victory. Thailand asks that France hand over to her practically the whole of the big southern province of Cambodia, nearly one-fourth of the whole large colony of Indochina. The Siamese government has also proposed another clause, which they want included in the treaty. If France ever gives up the sovereignty of all of Indochina to some other power, then Thailand wants a promise that she will have the first rights to still another big Indochinese province. That suggestion that someday France may be completely expelled from a richest Asiatic colony has, of course, an ominous sound. What is particularly troubling the Vichy government is that Siam's extravagant demands have been submitted to the French emissaries not by the Siamese themselves, but by the Japanese, who are supposed to be acting as entirely neutral arbitrators in the settlement of the dispute. And now we bring you Earl Godwin, reporting from the NBC newsroom in Washington. Good evening, everybody. President Roosevelt at the White House conference, press conference this afternoon, which I attended, 
got into a very good-natured verbal exchange with Blair Moody of the Detroit News, and out of this exchange, the president said he'd been told that Senator Wheeler of Montana had declared that Nazi domination of Europe is inevitable and that as a matter of self-defense, this country would have, have to take over Canada, Mexico, and all of Central America. The president credited this tale to the late William E. Dodd, former ambassador to Germany. The president said that Dodd, in about 1934 or 35, while he was here in Washington, had informed him of these views after a dinner, which Dodd said was held at Rex Tugwell's house, where there were present Dodd, Wheeler, and Senator Glass of Virginia. Well, Senator, Senator Wheeler is not in the city for comment. He's down south somewhere, but... Senator Glass was reached at his house tonight, and he said he had never attended a dinner at Tugwell's and had never dined with Dodd. Well, then there's that other story, a recent story, which has attracted a good deal of attention and violent denial. That is the report that this government is considering a trade of destroyers. The number mentioned is 20 for the big British battleship George V, which brought Lord Halifax over here. Landing him in the rain, you remember, at Annapolis with a great flare of publicity when the president went down to meet the new ambassador. The Navy said that this story of a trade of the battleship for destroyers is crazy. The president today told us at his press conference that it was a story invented by a Detroit paper. And yet, Clifford Prevost, the Detroit Free Press correspondent who wrote the original yarn, sticks to his guns. He says the story is right. Well, the brickbats began flying this morning on Capitol Hill when Saul Bloom, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the House, appeared before the Rules Committee of the House to get the right of way for the lend-lease measure next week. Bloom was sailing along smoothly, but he was stopped by a roar from Representative Gene Cox of Georgia, Democrat, a member of the Rules Committee, when Bloom referred to his bill as a defense bill. It's a war measure shouted Mr. Cox, and I will support it as such. Well, they got into further argument about it. You know, there's a time limit on this bill, which expires, according to the bill's present arrangement, June 30th, 1943. That's two and a half years hence. But Mr. Bloom disclosed what uh, has been spoken of previously, that the time limit on the bill would not affect some of the contracts made under the bill, they might live for years or they might live forever. Mr. Bloom disclosed also that this time limit would not stop the president from making contracts whose life might extend beyond that date. They will bind this government until doomsday, shouted Mr. Cox. And it's a castor oil bill, Rep Republican Representative Michigan shouted. It is all doctored up to taste sweet to the people. A bill appropriating almost one and one-half billion dollars to run the government's independent agencies in 1942 has been passed in two days by the House, and efforts to slash, to slash the bill have been defeated. There is absolutely no economy about the bill in any way, shape, or form. Earl Godwin says, goodbye. I return you now to the newsroom of the air in New York City. The announcement has been made in Athens tonight that the Greek armies in Albania have again begun a general advance along the middle northern front. A second big Italian counterattack has been thrown back, and the fascists, Athens says, have again suffered heavy losses. And that's all for tonight. This is John W. Vanderkoek saying good night.
Tonight, the NBC Newsroom of the Air has brought you the late news in London, Rome, New York, and Washington, and a two-way conversation between Fred Bate, chief of NBC staff in England, who arrived in New York today by Clipper, and his staff in London. This is the National Broadcasting Company. <laughs>